0: to Watchman on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and swrc.com. We are so glad you're here. Today, we jump right back into our look at the outstanding new resource from James Collins on the Minor Prophets,
1: the book entitled, The Twelve. The Old Testament contains 12 short prophetic books that theologians call the Minor Prophets. These 12 men speak on topics that read like tomorrow's headlines. The messages of the 12 are directed to a people seduced by false gods, a world torn by calamity, a nation captured by its pride, churches that have grown cold, leaders who abuse their power, a nation full of greedy people, a society that is morally bankrupt, and a world desperate about its future. The messages of the Twelve Minor Prophets offer the word that we need today. To help you take a fresh look at the Minor Prophets, Beacon Street Press has published a new book titled The Twelve. Joining me to talk about the Twelve is James Collins, James, congratulations on a great new book.
2: Thank you, Dr. Spargimino. I'm excited about the book and I'm excited to talk about it with you today.
1: Well, James, for those who are not familiar with the difference, would you explain the difference between a minor prophet and a major prophet?
2: Well, that's a great question. Bible scholars classify the prophets of the Old Testament into two groups, major prophets and minor prophets. There are four major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. The 12 minor prophets are Hosea, Joel, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. The major prophets are called major because their prophecies were longer. The minor prophets are called minor because their prophecies are shorter. (laughs) It's been my experience, Dr. Spargiamino, that when it comes to a preacher, people prefer a minor preacher over a major preacher. And I guess you could call the major prophets long-winded preachers, and the minor prophets would have made modern church people happy because they were short-winded preachers. But little is much when God is in it, and there are some fantastic messages contained in the writings of these minor prophets.
1: We could spend 12 programs talking about each one of the 12 minor prophets, but today we're going to just briefly touch on each one. So let's start with Hosea. What is the significance of Hosea? God used Hosea's life as sort of a living sermon to
2: speak about relationships, specifically the relationship of marriage. The first chapter of the book of Hosea opens with God telling Hosea to get married. Now normally that'd be a good thing, but God tells his prophet to marry a prostitute. Now at first it seems that Hosea had a good relationship with Gomer, but somewhere along the way she returned to her old life of prostitution. She abandoned her husband and her family, and eventually she ends up a slave. And I think the message for us today from the book of Hosea is there comes a point in the life of every sinner where you're on the auction block of sin, just like Gomer, just like Hosea's wife. You're doomed. And the devil says, I've got you, and nobody can pay the price, but just like Hosea came and purchase Gomer, Jesus comes and says, I will pay your sin debt, and Jesus paid the price to redeem you and I from the chains of sin, but he did not redeem us for us to go out and play the harlot anymore. He redeemed us so we could live as changed people. He demands now our faithfulness because we were bought and paid for with his
1: precious blood. In chapter 2 of the 12, you write about the prophet Joel you title that chapter, Restoring the Years. What is the significance of that title? Let me back up and give you a little
2: background. The book of Joel describes a disaster. Disaster came to the southern kingdom of Judah and its capital, Jerusalem. A dark cloud of locusts descended upon the country and destroyed all the crops. These locusts stripped away every single bit of vegetation. Now, the people could have fought against a human enemy, but they had no defense at all against this swarm of destructive locusts. And these locusts were God's judgment upon Judah's sin. You know, Dr. Spargimino, sin always brings judgment. Sin always brings misery. Sin always brings destruction. Like devouring locusts, sin will waste people's lives and strip away everything good from them. But in Joel 2.25, God says, I will restore to you the years that the locust hath eaten. God doesn't say, I might or I may. He says, I will restore to you. And, you know, if you've made some mistakes, you can't undo the past, but you can redeem the life that you have wasted. You can go and continue on now. You can't go back and live those wasted years again, but God can restore the life that you have now, and he can
1: give you a better future. Another one of the 12 minor prophets is Amos. He was an unusual prophet, wasn't he? Well, that's true, Dr. Spargimino. Amos was not
2: a traditional prophet, priest, or preacher. He was a country farmer. He didn't have the credentials of a traditional prophet. He never went to school. His family members were not prophets. He was a sheep herder and a tender of sycamore trees.
1: Well, how about the message of Amos? It was kind of unusual, wasn't it? Well, yes,
2: sir, Amos spoke of a famine, not a famine of food or water, but a famine of hearing the Word of God. In Amos 8, we read, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea, and from north even to the east, and they shall run to and fro to seek the Word of the Lord, and shall not find it. That's in Amos 8, verses 11 and 12. Dr. Partridge, we know the people of Amos' time, they knew a great deal about famines. They had been through many. They knew what it was like to live through a drought and watch one crop after another crop fail and die. They understood the suffering that famine brings when people starve to death. But the prophet Amos said that there was a famine that is worse than a famine of food. Jesus tells us in the Gospel of Matthew that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. So for us to grow spiritually, we have to feed on the words of the Bible. Every kind of life needs nutrients, including your spiritual life. And a famine of the Word of God, I believe, is coming up on our land. In fact, I believe that this prophecy is already being fulfilled. People on a whole worldwide are no longer interested in hearing the Word of God. We live in a world where people run to and fro seeking what they're not able to find because they have just rejected God's Word for so long, They're not able to recognize truth, even if that's what they desire to recognize. We're reaping what
1: we've sown today. I think you're absolutely right. That famine for hearing the words of the Lord, not wanting to receive those words, having a cold heart, hearing the word of God. I mean, we've got so many churches, we've got seminaries, we've got Bibles, Bible apps, and so on and so forth, and a lot of people just pass it by. That's a tragedy. It is. Millions
2: of ways to have God's Word. You can have 50 different translations of the Bible on your smartphone today. You can have all these different ways, commentaries, ways to study the Word of God, but people are not interested in it. We're living in a famine.
1: Yeah, I think one of the things that happens when a revival comes is that people get hungry, and that's one of the things we need to pray for, that there would be a hunger in America. But James, tell us about the prophet Obadiah, Isn't Obadiah the shortest book in the Old Testament?
2: Well, yes it is. You're absolutely right. Obadiah's book is unusual because unlike the other prophets, he didn't speak to the northern nation of Israel or the southern nation of Judah. Instead, Obadiah preached to the nation of Edom. Now, the nation of Israel descended from Jacob. Edom descended from Esau, the son of Isaac and Rebekah and the brother of Jacob. The Edomites, they lived in the rock city of Petra, which, as you know, is in modern-day Jordan. Pastor Noah Hutchings wrote a tremendous book that we have available at swrc.com on the city of Petra. But in my chapter on Obadiah, I go into detail about the history of the Edomites. Most people don't know this, but the Palestinians today that are in Israel today are descendants of Esau. They're Edomites. The Edomites, the Palestinians, absolutely hate the Jews because they believe the land of Israel belongs to them. And understanding that history helps to make sense of the constant state of conflict that's in Israel today.
1: Probably the most famous of the 12 minor prophets is Jonah. Tell us about that story, and do you think it should be so famous?
2: I think Jonah is by far the most well-known of the 12 minor prophets. The colorful story of him being swallowed by the big fish has really been enjoyed by children for generations. I first remember hearing that story when I was a child in one of those Bible picture books that my mother had. When our kids were little, we used to read to them from a children's book version of Jonah, and I think that's why that is such a popular and famous story today.
1: Well, you call Jonah a fugitive. Tell us why you give him that title. Well, I took that from
2: the old television program called The Fugitive. That program was also made into a movie that starred Harrison Ford several years ago. Now, in that television show and in that movie, there was a doctor named Richard Kimball who was falsely accused of killing his wife, and he was on the run. And The Fugitive was about a man on the run, and there are christians today who are running from god they're fugitive christians and that's exactly what jonah was in the new testament sense of the term he was running from god he was a
1: fugitive yeah i've also heard people call him the reluctant prophet yes when great things happened in nineveh he went and oh no i was afraid this would happen you would save those nasty people and so (laughs) he indeed was a fugitive
2: he was like a lot of preachers today, the greatest revival of all time, and he, he sat and cried about it
1: <laughs> I, about it. You know? know. Yeah, and that's true. You know, if we have a revival, that's going to mean a lot of work. You know, I've often told our churches, people look at the clock around 12 o'clock, they want to leave, but can you imagine? If there was about 60 or 70 people came in from the street and they were weeping and they were moaning and they wanted to be counseled and they, and you say, well, wait a second, I've got to go and have lunch. No, I wouldn't say that. So revival does call us to work, to pray, to be faithful and diligent in the Word of God.
2: Those times are precious, and they're few and far between. And isn't it special when something like that happens, and when you see a manifest move of God like that? I want those times for my life and for my children. I want to see my children experience things like that.
1: I remember in Pakistan, we had some meetings in some very rural villages, and there was only one bare light bulb. And the meeting went on and on and on. And I looked at my clock, and it was after midnight, almost 1 o'clock, and the pastor Victor said, we're not supposed to be here that late. They told us to get out of here before it gets dark. But who cares, right? When the Lord is working, we're we're doing his work. Chapter 6 of the 12 focuses on the prophet Micah. There was one verse that you focused on in that chapter. Tell us about that verse and why you put so much time on it.
2: I spent a lot of time unpacking Micah 6.8. If I could sum up the Christian life in one sentence, it would be that verse. Micah six eight says, He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. What does do justly mean? It means to treat people fairly do justly to people at work do justly to people at school at church at home treat others like you would want to be treated love mercy that means treating others with compassion be kind to people be nice When that little girl knocks on my door to try to sell me some Girl Scout cookies right in the middle of my favorite football game, I'm going to treat her with loving kindness. When the waitress messes up my order for the third time, I'm going to treat her with loving kindness. When the kid at Walmart can't seem to get the cash register to work and I have to stand in line for 20 minutes, I'm going to treat him with loving kindness. And then the Bible says to walk humbly. If you walk with God, that means you have fellowship with God, surrender to God, spend time with Him, have friendship with Him. Walk humbly with God. Do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. I pray every day that God helps me to do just that.
1: Hebrew prophets sounded a very needed note for us today, and it's amazing. I love that verse in Micah 6. But what about the message of the prophet Nahum? What is the message and what does it tell us today? I think Nahum's message for us
2: today is sort of a sad one. The message that Nahum had was God's grace has its limits. You see, Nahum is a companion book to the book of Jonah. God sent Jonah to the city of Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Assyria was a bitter enemy of Israel and eventually Assyria overran. Israel and took the nation into captivity. Nineveh was a place that was famous for being brutal. Still, God sent Jonah there with a warning. Then an amazing thing happened, like we talked about a while ago. All the city, from the king down to the poorest commoner, every person in the city of Nineveh repented. They heeded God's warning from Jonah. Now, when we get to the book of Nahum, a hundred years had passed since Jonah preached there at Nineveh. After a 100 years, the people of Nineveh had forgotten all about God. The generation that repented died, and this new generation of Ninevites returned to their old bloodthirsty ways of murder, adultery, fornication, and idolatry. They completely ignored the one true God. So God sent Nahum to Nineveh to preach a message of certain judgment. Jonah told of God's grace, but God's grace has its limits, and Nahum explains what happens when God's grace reaches those limits.
1: Yeah, it reminds me of Romans, therefore God gave them over. Wow, that's about as serious as a famine for hearing the words of the Lord. Sometimes we speak about the love of God. There is such a thing as the love of God, but God is holy and just. He gives people an opportunity, but when they continually reject Him as the Old Testament did, Israel, Jerusalem, rejecting God, that's a serious thing. And, you know, as I've been reading and listening to you, I think of so many people in our country today. We've had so many opportunities, but yet we turn it away. Like the original 9-11, for about a week, people went to church, and after that, they went back.
2: I think in America, we are living in a time of Jonah But the time of Nahum is coming. God's judgment
1: is certain. It's coming. That's profound. Any act of repentance or faith, for it to be real, it needs to stick. I know some people go to revival meetings. They weep. They cry. They get all excited. They walk forward at the altar. They make a profession of faith. You never see them again. That's really not a good sign. Well, the next prophet in the Twelve is Habakkuk. Doesn't he write in a poetic style?
2: Yes, some people call Habakkuk a minor psalmist rather than a minor prophet. His work is not so much a word from the Lord to share with people. Instead, his work is a conversation between the prophet Habakkuk and God. It reads sort of like a journal or a prayer book. Chapter 3 of Habakkuk is an actual psalm. Well, doesn't Habakkuk cry out for revival, too? Yes, sir, that's right. Habakkuk poured his soul out to God according to the pain that he felt for his people. He begged, he pleaded, and he cried with strong emotion for God to send revival. And Do you know why Habakkuk prayed that way? It was because his nation, Dr. Spargimino, was in trouble. Habakkuk prayed and pleaded because God's judgment was about to fall on his nation. And it's not hard to see the application today. America is in desperate need of revival.
1: Well, Zephaniah is an interesting prophet. He prophesied extensively about the last days, didn't he? What do we learn about the last days from him?
2: There was so much prophecy in Zephaniah that it was difficult to narrow my focus. For example, we read in Zephaniah 2, Gather yourselves together, ye gather together, O nation, not desired. Before the decree bring forth, before the day pass as the chaff, before the fierce anger of the Lord come upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger come upon you. Now, in that passage, Zephaniah uses a very rare verb that comes from gathering chaff or stubble, meaning to gather what is small and insignificant. Now, he repeats that word twice in that section for emphasis, He's spilling out judgment up to that point. And then he begins to call for repentance. He describes what will take place once the people are gathered. He says the decree, the day, the fierce anger of the Lord, and the day of the Lord's anger, these are all references to Israel's regathering in the land before the seven-year tribulation begins, what we're seeing happen right now before our very eyes. The current nation of Israel is back in the land in unbelief, but they are positioned to fulfill what the prophets have predicted will happen during the seven-year tribulation period.
1: Haggai and Zechariah are post-exilic prophets. What is a post-exilic prophet? It means they preached to the remnant, the
2: small group who came back from exile to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Some prophets preached to the people and told them that their sins would lead them into exile, and some of the prophets preached to the people while they were in exile. But Zechariah and Haggai lived in a time when the people had returned. And the people of God were in exile for 70 years, but now they're home. This small group came home to Jerusalem with a mission from God. They were to rebuild the walls, the city, and the temple, and they were especially to rebuild their relationship
1: with God. The book is titled The Twelve. It is a terrific study of the minor prophets of the Old Testament. James, I wish you much success with the book. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me and our listeners about it. Thank you, Dr. Spargimino.
0: The Twelve by James Collins is filled with excellent Bible teaching and wonderful illustrations as he examines the lives of the Minor Prophets. Get your copy of The Twelve for a gift of $20 or more when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Or order online, swrc.com. James Collins returns now with A Moment of Prophecy.
2: A while back, a couple of members of the Jehovah's Witnesses came to my door. I was polite, but I told them that I was saved by the blood of Jesus Christ and that I really wasn't interested in their cult. One of them said, Sir, you're mistaken. We're not a cult. If you only understood Greek, you would realize that your Bible is wrong. I asked them to wait just a minute. I went into my office and got my copy of the Greek New Testament. When I came back, I said, here's a Greek New Testament. Show me. Show me where I'm wrong. Of course, they couldn't. They had only been told that the Bible was wrong. The Bible tells us that in the last days there'll be a rise in cults. The Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. That passage is from 1 Timothy 4 verses 1 and 2. The members of the Watchtower Society, the Jehovah's Witnesses, have departed from the faith. They give heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, and they speak lies. Biblically, The Jehovah's Witnesses are a cult. The World Book Dictionary says a cult is a group or sect whose practices or beliefs are separated from generally accepted values and creeds. One of the most common traits of a cult is the fact that they look to a person or group other than the Bible for spiritual revelation. So by definition and by trait, Jehovah's Witnesses are a cult. Jehovah's Witnesses depend upon the Watchtower magazine and the Awake magazine for spiritual revelation. These two publications are printed in Brooklyn, New York, by the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. This society was founded by Charles Taze Russell. Now, he didn't agree with the generally accepted beliefs that most churches have about hell and eternal judgment. He also did not believe in the Trinity. So instead of believing what the Bible says, Charles Taze Russell started his own religion. According to the Bible, God's true prophets have to be right 100% of the time. The Bible also says no one knows when the Lord will return. Charles Taze Russell said Jesus would return in 1876. It didn't happen. He departed from the scriptures and he was wrong. That makes Charles Taze Russell a false prophet. By the way, the Watchtower Society has mistakenly predicted that Jesus would return in 1914, 1918, 1925, and 1975. Guess what? They were wrong each time. The Bible tells us in Revelation 22:18 18 and 19 not to add or take away from the Scriptures. Over the years, scholars have found the Watchtower and Bible track society wrong about many, many things. Instead of correcting their mistakes, they have produced their own translation of the Bible. They have changed the words of the Bible to fit their own theology. Now here are just a few of the things that Jehovah's Witnesses teach. They say that Jesus is a created being, but the Bible says Jesus is the Creator. They say Jesus is actually Michael the Archangel. The Bible says Jesus is the Son of God. They say Jesus was not resurrected bodily, but He was a spirit being. The Bible says Jesus appeared bodily to His disciples and told them to look at His flesh and bones. They say Jesus returned invisibly in 1914 and appeared secretly to the leaders of their organization. The Bible says Jesus will return the same way He went away, which was visibly, and every eye will see Him. They say Jesus was a man when He was on earth and that He was not the Word made flesh. They say that Jesus should not be worshipped. And that's exactly the opposite of what the Bible says. They say hell is just the grave. The Bible says that hell is a place of eternal punishment. For those without Jesus Christ. They say heaven's doors are only open to 144,000. The Bible says heaven is for whosoever, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They say salvation is only through their organization. The Bible says salvation is only through Jesus Christ. They say the doctrine of the Trinity originated with Satan. The Bible, which was given by inspiration from the Holy Spirit, teaches that there is a Godhead. Perhaps instead of Jehovah's Witnesses, they should be called Jehovah's False Witnesses. Sadly, this cult is very active. Chances are they've knocked on your door. It's reported that a membership of approximately 8.4 million members of the Watchtower Society are actively involved, knocking on doors, trying to get people to join their organization. More than 1 billion hours is spent witnessing by the Jehovah Witnesses every year. Last year, more than $200 million was spent by Jehovah's Witnesses to support their mission efforts and care for their missionaries. The group reported over 200,000 baptisms last year. There are more than 9 million home Bible studies that happen every month, although these, quote, studies are based on published watchtower materials, not on the Word of God. It's true that Jehovah's Witnesses work hard, but works won't save them. They need to receive Jesus as their Savior. So what should you do the next time a Jehovah Witness knocks on your door? Treat them with Christian love and compassion. Remember they've been deceived and they believe a false gospel. Let them know that you care about their eternal salvation. Share your Christian testimony with them. Talk to them, but don't allow them to conduct what they call a Bible study. Just speak the truth to them in love. Direct your conversation to the person of Jesus Christ and the need to put total faith in what He has done. And above all else, pray for them. Pray that they would leave the false teaching of the Watchtower Society and find salvation in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. This is James Collins reminding you that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of
0: prophecy. In the brand new book, The Twelve, James Collins explores the life and times of the Minor Prophets. James considers the circumstances under which each prophet labored, the issues he confronted, and his message meant for the people of his day, and how that message applies to those of us living in these last days. Get the 12 book, and our 2022 Prophecy Calendar, which is based on the Twelve, for a gift of $20 or more when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Or order online, swrc.com. Tomorrow, we'll ask Pastor Larry to answer a Bible question for us, and we get listener feedback on James Collins' new book, The Twelve. Be sure to tune in on your favorite radio station or by subscribing to our daily podcast. Watchman on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and is supported by faithful listeners like you. Visit swrc.com.